0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane, and it's Thursday, March the 16th. In this podcast, I'm talking to my colleagues Rebecca Cooney and Aaron Van Dorn in our New York office for an update on the political situation concerning health care plans in the United States. Beth, can I start with you? Can you just remind us of what we know already? And that is, of course, that Donald Trump and his administration, one of the very first things they've pledged to do is to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Just remind us where we are and uh, what their plans are.
1: Most people probably know this was kind of the crowning piece of what Donald Trump said he was planning on doing was to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act on day one of his administration, and we've come to see that that was not only not something that he actually could do, but it's actually a much more complicated, as he's more recently acknowledged, endeavor than he thought. What the latest is that, after much anticipation, this uh, March 6, 2017, Paul Ryan, who is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, came out with the American Health Care Act, the AHCA which some people have been referring to as Trump Care, but might more appropriately be called Ryan Care. It's currently still in committee and has yet to be discussed more widely by the House, but things are unfolding fairly rapidly now that this is in the public domain after it was in a really opaque process kind of came to be. The piece of legislation is is designed to be sort of an answer to the Affordable Care Act that was passed in, 2010. But I think what's very notable um, and that you know, we should be appreciating from the outset is that whereas the Affordable Care Act had really specific goals behind it, which were to expand access to health insurance and then to protect patients against the arbitrary actions of insurance companies and then to reduce costs, the AHCA doesn't seem to be nearly so goal-directed, which makes it a little bit more of a difficult piece of legislation to parse, but it also makes it a lot more Of a scary and potentially fraught bag of um, of a bill. From there, Aaron can tell you a little bit more about what this actually means in terms of this specific step of introducing this legislation.
2: The House is really constrained in a number of respects as far as what they can accomplish with legislation at this point just due to the number of parties in the uh, Congress and who's in the White House, but they've kind of settled on to a final three-pronged plan is what they're calling it. The first step is the AHCA that's been proposed and they're working on right now, but steps two and three are administrative action and additional legislation. Right now the first step is obviously they're going to try to get this new piece of legislation passed. The second step is administrative action, and we're already seeing a little bit of that as Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price just released a letter this week indicating willingness to consider waivers for states that have Medicaid to increase kind of constraints on who gets and who receives Medicaid benefits including work restrictions and things like that. The third piece, additional legislation, is a lot hazier because due to the constraints in the Senate and the current de facto 60 vote majority requirement through the filibuster, there's really not a whole lot that the Republicans can do to pass legislation that will continue to erode the protections offered by the Affordable Care Act until they're able to peel off at least eight. Democrats to be able to do it. And it doesn't really look like right now that's a possibility with even the most conservative of the Democratic caucus very firmly behind maintaining the uh, Affordable Care Act.
0: Thank you. That's Very helpful detail. Of course, the other thing that's happened just in the past few days, of course, is that the non-partisan Congressional Budget Office has done some analysis and come out with some data uh, concerning projections for the number of potentially uninsured Americans, not just next year, but also looking ahead right up to 2026. and, And basically has come out with some rather staggering figures, which is causing a bit of bit of a row uh, from the Trump camp. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Basically what the CBO said is that under the American Health Care Act, the individual and employer mandate, which requires individuals and employers to offer health care insurance under certain conditions. For individual, every individual is required to maintain health insurance coverage or face a tax penalty at the end of the year. And for employers, I believe over 50 employees have to maintain health care coverage for their employees. The AHCA does away with that requirement, and it replaces it with a 30% surcharge that would be offered by health insurance companies for anyone who doesn't maintain continuous coverage. So if you let your health care coverage lapse, perhaps you lost your job and weren't able to find one for a couple of months and weren't able to afford coverage to cover it, then when you get them back in, when you finally purchased health insurance, the insurance company would be able to charge you what they would normally charge plus an extra surcharge of 30%. It's also pitched as giving Americans freedom back and empowering them with more flexibility by offering them to whether or not they want to have health insurance coverage or not, and by opening up the amount of health care coverage by allowing them to limit the types of health care coverage and types of health care plans that would be available. It would repeal the income-based subsidies that are a a feature of the Affordable Care Act and replace them with age-based tax credits. So instead of receiving a subsidy to purchase health insurance based upon your income and your ability to pay, you would receive a tax credit based upon your age. So older people would receive more tax credit at the end of the year. One of the issues with that, of course, is that for people who have struggled to purchase health insurance because of the cost, a tax credit at the end of the year doesn't give them any help to purchase health insurance right now. It also encourages the use of health savings accounts, which allow people to save money from their income tax-free and to be able to purchase health insurance and a, to be able to pay for things like uh, deductibles and other medicines and things that they need. But it also guts the Medicaid expansion, which would throw a lot of people who have been ex- had health insurance extended to them through the Affordable Care Act, would take that health insurance back. And it's still not entirely clear how a lot of these are going to be paid for. As it rolls back all of the Affordable Care Act's taxes, mostly on high-income earners, also on insurance providers and on makers of medical devices.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Certainly the headlines over this side of the Atlantic are that the CBO estimates that something like 10 million Americans will be uninsured next year because of the new proposals of the American Health Care Act and up to 24 million by the year 2026. Are those the main figures making the headlines over there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right now we're looking at about 14 million new uninsured people above the uh, Affordable Care Act baseline by 2018 next year. And then that would stretch out to 24 million by 2026, with a total of 56 million uninsured in the total population, which would be 18.6% of the population under the American Health Care Act versus 10% of the population under the Affordable Care Act, which is current law. And it would also completely wipe out the gains that are made through Medicaid enrollees, and which currently includes anyone who has income of below 138% of the poverty line, which The Affordable Care Act dropped from about 16% of uninsured that had been stable for several decades to about 10% of uninsured within two years.
0: The response that we've read in the papers here is that the Trump administration and Tom Price in particular, they're just not believing these projections coming out of the CBO report. There's, a frankly, a standoff. That's putting it mildly, isn't it? There's there's a blazing row going on, isn't there?
1: There is, but I think it's also important to, to consider that the CBO projections are one part of the potential fallout from the AHCA. Two other really notable pieces that I think are important to kind of consider before we before we take on kind of what the, what the general impression of this plan is. One area that both the Republicans have been very quick to kind of sort of take on the language is this idea of how you preserve vital patient protection. And that is one of sort of the, the pieces of the AHCA that has been sort of co-opted from the Affordable Care Act. And um, really interestingly, and these are some of the, the um, aspects that I think are going to become problematic, for example, it, it preserves this idea of um, pre-existing conditions being a, no longer uh, a problem for people getting insurance And since 2014 when exclusions were prohibited. That has become probably the most popular aspect of the Affordable Care Act and something that it really seems like people on both sides of the aisle are going to to want to preserve in any sort of potential repeal and replace scenario. Also, dependent age limits are not something that would change depending on this new plan. But also there's some, there's some more nefarious aspects of this. At, at first read, it seems as though the plans would keep benefits Potentially the same according to the essential health benefits requirement that the Affordable Care Act stipulated. But actually, after December 31st of 2019, there could be the sunset of those benefits, especially for maternity and newborn care, and then mental health and substance use disorder services, including behavioral health treatment. And there is going to be a real sticking point, and that also plays into how Both the CBO report has been received as well as the AHCA to begin with. And really where it's going to be divided among Republicans, the more conservative Republicans, part of the Freedom Caucus, have objected to the AHCA as sort of being... Obamacare light, you know, that it's maintaining the sort of entitlement program. But then the more moderate Republicans, for example, like Governor John Kasich, who, as you might remember, was also a Republican candidate, in Republican governors of states who opted into the Medicaid expansion who have aging populations, also populations that have drug abuse issues. That's going to be a major sticking point for them, and so when they see projections of of Medicaid being rolled back and huge decrements in the number of people covered, that is going to make it much more difficult for this bill to actually pass. But it's also very interesting that we have people like Tom Price, who is the Health and Human Services Secretary, saying that he doesn't think anybody's going to be worse off financially because of the AHCA win certainly the CBO projections and even the White House projections themselves would would argue against that. It's going to be very difficult to see how this is going to play out. There's also tremendous backlash from groups like AARP, the Association for Retired People, the American Medical Association, um, different American hospital associations, the Federation of American Hospitals, and other groups like the Consumers Union and, and Children's Defense Fund all coming out against this proposed legislation. So, so there's some serious challenges that this is going to face that will we'll bear on what happens next.
0: Just remind us of the process. I mean, this is just the firing again of a starting gun, isn't it? It's the presentation of the proposal for an act, but of course it's not enacted yet, the American Healthcare Act. It's like a bill, say, if it's like in the UK, it's introduced. It can then be kicked around back and forth. Process-wise, this could go on for a long time. What are the next steps and sort of landmarks in the timetable?
2: There's quite a few steps still to remain to get the bill passed into law. It's still in the House at the moment. It's still in committee. It needs to be voted out of committee first. There are two committees that it needs to go through and then it needs to be voted on by the full House. Right now it's not clear, but it's unlikely that Ryan wouldn't be able to pass it out of the House. But once it gets into the House, it has to pass in the Senate. And because of the structure of the Senate and because of the way they're doing this bill, it needs to pass through a process called reconciliation. A lot of the, what goes on in the Senate is extremely arcane, and it's hard to describe if you're not used to it. But it means that if a bill only affects the budget, they can pass it with 50 votes in the 100-vote Senate. Senate yeah. But that means that the Republicans with 52 seats should be able to pass it but they can only afford to lose three Republican votes. And it's not clear right now whether or not they can maintain those three votes because we have a number of people from states like Kentucky and Arkansas, Senators Tom Cotton and Rand Paul, both of those states accepted the Medicaid coverage expansion, and if it were to be repealed, would have a very negative impact on their uh, constituents back home. Also an open question about, because they structured this bill through the reconciliation process, it needs to have, everything that it does needs to have bearing on the budget process. So there are aspects of it. For example, the 30% surcharge that insurance companies would be allowed to charge for people who don't maintain continuous coverage, it's not clear that that has any bearing on the budget process because that is a charge that a private company would be able to charge individuals. So there's a rule in the Senate called the Bird Rule that means that parties would be able to object to to things that they don't think have any bearing on their budget process like that and like some other things such as the uh, coverage sunsetting that Beck talked about earlier. It's not clear that that bill would even be able to pass through the Senate under the current rules as they stand.
0: So, Beck, in the meantime, of course, the Affordable Care Act is still legally on the statute book and will continue to be there. So for Americans in the meantime, what are they doing? Watching, waiting, getting alarmed, not knowing what's going on?
1: I think some of all of those. I think that also the international community um, has some reason to be alarmed as well. For example, one of the points that we didn't mention earlier, but that the the American Health Care Act would also do something to repeal the funding for the Prevention and Public Health Fund, which the CDC would stand to lose about $890 million a year, about 12% of its funding. Obviously, the repercussions both uh, at home and internationally are are pretty pronounced when we consider prevention and public health um, issues there. It's going to be a watch and see, but I think the, you know, the really alarming um, aspect is that this is not the only bill that is out there. There are bills brewing in the Senate as we speak. There have also been bills by Rand Paul, as well as Bill Cassidy and Susan Collins in Maine, who currently have the Patient Freedom Act in the Senate. There are definitely legislators who are interested in finding ways to cut the existing expenditure that will have repercussions, I think, both here at home and internationally. So it's something that that everybody has reason to be paying very close attention to.
0: Well, thank you both for your time. It's clearly still a very murky mixed picture, but it's really helpful to have that in-depth update from you both. So thank you for your inside knowledge and expertise. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.